Good morning. Uh, if you don't know who I am, I am Pastor Matt. I'm an elder here at Living Hope. I uh, oversee uh, discipleship and youth ministry, and I'm glad to be able to, to speak with you this morning. If you have your Bibles, if you would turn, please, to the book of Hebrews chapter 8. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, if you got to bring it this morning, we do have some blue Bibles in the back tables right at the end of these rows here. You can go to page 1005. There's... So uh, that's where you'll find Hebrews chapter 8. So we are uh, going to be talking, continuing our discussion in Hebrews about how... Okay, are we going to do this again? We'll see. Last time I had used the handheld. <laughs> so um, we're going to be talking again today about how Jesus is our high priest, continuing off this long argument that the author of Hebrews is writing uh, about Jesus being our high priest of a new and better covenant. And so as we, this is kind of a pivotal moment in the book of Hebrews where he switches a bit of his argument, and we're going to be talking from here on out a bit about covenants, particularly the new covenant. And something, you know, the word covenant is so important to biblical theology, it's so important to the storyline of Scripture, but what really is it? I'm going to give you a bit of a definition, and I'm going to give two more pops, and then I'm going to the handheld. I promise you, I will not make you endure this the whole time. Uh, covenant is where God freely establishes a mutually binding relationship with a people. So a covenant is something that God... All right, I think we're good. All right. All righty. Thank you. A covenant is God freely establishing a mutually binding relationship with a people. So this means that, first of all, it's a relationship that God initiates. It's not something that people initiate and say, I want to have a, this certain relational organization with God. God is the one who does it. He does it freely, which means there's just nothing pressing God to do it. There's no reason outside of himself why God would initiate this. But God freely establishes a relationship with the people. And it is a mutually binding relationship, which means that there are expectations, uh, that there are responsibilities that God sets up. The ground rules for the relationship. God says, I will do these things. So God makes promises. right? He says to Abraham that I will make a great nation out of you. I, I will give you a son, and he, and he will make a great nation. Kings will come from you. All I will bless your name, and your name will be a blessing to all people. Right? He, he, he makes promises, right? but he also has expectations on the people who are part of the covenant. Right? There's ground rules. And, and, and this may, you know, it sounds like you know, covenant's not something we use in common everyday speech, but we do understand that there are ground rules for all of the different relationships that we have. The most obvious is through a husband and wife, you actually stand up and say, you know, I'm going to marry you, to have and to hold in sickness and health, or better or worse, better or worse, richer or poorer. Like there's like a set of promises that you make that set the ground rules and expectations for the relationship. The same is true even though it's kind of unwritten with your kids. When you give birth, they don't actually hand you a contract and say, here's, how to, here's what parenting does. You know, they don't do that. But it's, it's, ex it's expected that like you are responsible as a parent to provide for your child, to protect them, to raise them, that, that, it, that is what you're supposed to do. Actually, legally, you are responsible for it. And children are expected to obey their parents. But also even like just 
you're, you know, if you're a, a worker and uh, you're an employee and you have a boss, there's oftentimes written expectations for how that relationship works. So a covenant, just to put it simply, is the ground rules that God sets for how we can be in relationship with him. And today, we're going to talk about how there used to be an old set of ground rules that God set for his people in the Old Testament. And there were some, some issues with it we'll talk about later. And that Jesus is the one who has set a new covenant, a new set of ground rules for how we relate to him. And it's much better. With that said, I'm going to read from Hebrews chapter 8, if you look with me this morning, starting in verse 1. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as, that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. For if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. But he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and I, so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. This is the word of God. Would you pray with me? Father, we come to gather to learn from you, to learn about your mighty works, the wonderful works of God. And so I pray, God, that you would stir our thoughts and our heart and our affections. God, that we would marvel at the things that you have done, that we would delight in you, that we would have confidence in our great high priest, Jesus Christ, your son whom you sent for us. Be with us now in this moment. We ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. So if you look with me at this first section, we're talking about how Jesus has a better ministry than the, that under the old covenant, that we have a high priest. And the very first words that he says there, he says, the point of what we're saying is we have such a high priest. And, and really what he's saying there, he's, he's arguing back all the way to Hebrews chapter 4, uh, starting at verse 14, where he first begins talking about Jesus as our high priest. And he says, 
Since then we have such a high priest who has passed through the heavens, let us hold fast to our confession. And then he goes on and he's talking about, hey, we do have a high priest. As Christians, that's what we have. Now remember, the author is writing to the Hebrews. He's writing to Jewish people who are believers. They formerly were under Judaism. They were living under the old covenant with the temple system, with the sacrifices and the festivals. They had come to faith in Jesus. And now they've kind of left all of those things away. But they learned some things under the Old Covenant. They learned that a high priest is necessary for sinful people to approach a holy God. We all need a go-between. We all need a mediator, a representative. We do not deal directly with God in a covenant as sinful people. If any of us, if anyone was to try to approach God on his own merits and stand before him, none could stand before him. You remember, if you go back to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah was a priest. He was a holy man. He encounters the living God while serving in the temple. And he says, I am ruined. I am an unclean man with unclean lips among unclean people. Like, he standing before God, even as the holiest man maybe of his generation, recognizes I'm not worthy to be before God. So we all need a priestly mediator, someone to go before us. Now, the Jews had the law, they had the covenant, they had the promises, the priesthood, the temple. They had this structure in place that was very reassuring, I'm sure. It was very tangible. There's the temple right there. They're offering sacrificing, they're offering sacrifices right there. The high priest is doing his thing. And there's some comfort in the physical, tangible part of that. But now these Jewish Christians, they, they had come to a place where they had accepted Christ and believed that he had given his life as a sacrifice. So those things, those forms and functions were no longer necessary. But you could see, you might be able to understand how it would be hard for these Jewish believers that that, that might be a hurdle or a stumbling block that might lead them back to the perceived security of Judaism. Really? There's... There's no temple anymore. There's no priest. There's no sack. None of, none of that stuff. Like, they grew up with it. It was comfortable for them. So now the author of Hebrews has spent the last several chapters arguing, no, Jesus didn't demolish the priesthood. He fulfilled it. Okay, we, he has replaced all of that. He is, Jesus is indeed qualified to be a high priest. And this is important, especially writing Jewish believers, lest they wander from the faith believing Jesus is some sort of a fraud or an interloper. How can we, you could see, how could they talk about Jesus sacrificing himself on a cross for sins? Priests do that. That's their thing, right? So how... Could Jesus do that? Well, he's arguing Jesus is a high priest, but not after the Levitical order, not after the, the order of Aaron, but after a whole different order. I'm not going to go into all of things, but he argues in those past few chapters what we've been talking about for the past few weeks to show that Jesus is indeed a worthy high priest and a better high priest, a superior high priest than anything that the old covenant could offer. Some highlights That Jesus didn't assume this role himself. He didn't just show up and say, oh, by the way, I'm the new guy. No, he was called by God to do this. And that he was was a priest similar to this shadowy figure called Melchizedek was a priest in the Old Testament. Talked about how Jesus can sympathize with our weaknesses as a good high priest. He knows that we are sinners. He knows that we are weak. And yet he himself is without sin. 
That Jesus' ministry as a priest secures an eternal salvation. That he is the one sacrifice, his offering of sacrifice, takes away all the other sacrifices. They're not needed anymore. And Jesus saves us fully and finally and forever. And then as a high priest, he lives forever to intercede for us and can save to the uttermost. And there's, there's much more, but he spent these chapters arguing about this. And the author of Hebrews, he, he started that phrase saying, we have a high priest, and now he repeats it. We, this is the point. We have this high priest. He's saying, hey, this, he's saying to his audience, this, this isn't just an ideal. This isn't just pie in the sky. This is a reality for us who are in faith. And not just for Jewish believers. This isn't just comforting for them, right? It's comforting for us. Jesus' ministry is ongoing. He is in heaven. He is seated in glory at the right hand of the Father. He is ministering in the true tent, as it said, the tabernacle, which is not here on earth but in heaven. This is the one that the Lord set up, we're told, in verse 2. Not man. And so now he's, gonna, he's, he's saying Jesus truly is a high priest, and he's your high priest. And we'll get a little bit more into that in a bit. But now he's going to once again contrast this with what the priests of the Old Covenant were doing. Look with me at verse 3. And he's going to talk about how, the, the, how Jesus is not serving on earth, but rather in heaven. But that there's a difference to what the priests on earth were doing. Because at the time, this is probably before 70 AD, when the, the Jewish temple was finally destroyed... They could still see all that stuff, all, all the offerings still taking place. But what does a high priest do? Let's just start there a second. What does a high priest do? Well, he offers gifts. He offers sacrifices for sin on behalf of people. But he doesn't just, like, do this at his house. He doesn't just, like, do this in the woods. He doesn't just do this, you know, behind the shed. Like, there is a specific place that God said this is to occur. Earlier on, it was in the tabernacle. Right? And then there was a tent, right? And it was mobile. It could be folded up and put away and not put away, but folded up and carried and traveling with them. But eventually they set up a permanent temple. And that is where these sacrifices took place. So the question could be, well, if Jesus is truly a high priest, like where, where is he doing his high priestly thing? The author says, don't worry. He's, he's, he's serving as high priest, but the place where he's serving is not here on earth. It's in heaven. And by the way, that is the true tabernacle. That is the true place where his ministry is taking place. And the author, the author does something interesting here. Because you might think that, you know, you know that, that the, the old covenant temple tabernacle system, that's kind of the real thing. That's the original. That's the OG. And Jesus just kind of like copies that. Right? And just kind of takes it and says, no, this is, I'm, I'm, I'm just going to kind of build off of that. Maybe there was an assumption that's what's happening. And I'll give an example. Um, I think Mormonism, as an example, does that. It takes a lot of the things from Christianity, a lot of the vocabulary, the history, and then kind of like creates its own thing that isn't the same. He's saying that's not what Jesus is doing. He's not, it didn't, Jesus didn't take the original and then make it, you know, his own. Jesus' ministry, the temple he's serving in in heaven, that's the real thing. That's the true temple. And actually, the, the, the temple on earth, the tabernacle on earth where the old covenant priests were serving, that's actually a copy. That's actually an imitation of what's really happening in heaven. The priests serve a copy and a shadow. And he said, and the way he says this is goes, hey, do you remember when, when God was giving Moses instructions, Moses to, to erect this old tent? He, he says, 
do it after the pattern that I've given you. Which means that God wasn't just, you know, making it up like, you know, it would be cool if we had this, you know, like three entrances. And, you know, I like these colors. Like he wasn't just making it up on the fly. He was saying God was giving an exact pattern for them to follow. But he says that these priests in the Old Covenant, they served a copy and a shadow. What's a copy? Well, it's something that's based on something real. It's, it's mimicking or recreating the original, but it's not the same thing. Right? It doesn't have the same value to it. Right? If you have a dollar bill, that actually has some worth to it. If you go stick it on the copy machine and hit, and hit start and you do both sides, you know, it, a, a picture of that dollar bill will come out and the authorities will be... Will be actually, that's actually a thing. I think if you try to copy any kind of money, it'll actually let the authorities know. So don't do that. Um, but the copy does not have value to it, okay? It can show you what it's like, but it's not the same thing. A copy is based on a pattern. In this case, given by God for the construction of the original tabernacle in heaven. I love the Torah. I, I love the first five books of Moses. And if, you've ever, if, and if you have never read the book of Exodus, I would commend you to do it because it is action-packed. Okay? There, there's a reason why a lot of classic Hollywood movies and TV shows even have been made about the Exodus. I mean, you have all the plagues. You've got let my people go. You've got, like, the crossing of the Red Sea. You know, you've got, you know, fire in the sky. There's some really cool stuff that happens in the first half of the book of Exodus. But I'm going to be honest. The second half of Exodus slows down a bit. That's when they come to Mount Sinai and there's the giving of the law. And there's really, the second half slows down, especially chapters 25 through 30. There's five chapters dealing with very detailed instructions for building the tabernacle. You're to make the rings for the curtains. And you're this many of them. It's supposed to be this many cubits long in this many sections. And it's to be woven with this kind of fabric. And it's to be placed in this kind of arrangement. And it goes on. And the priests, they're to be anointed in this way. And they're to wear an ephod with stones in this a certain organization, and, and it gets really, really detailed. And then it does it again in verses, in chapters 35. There's a five-chapter break, and then chapters 35 for 40 narrate the execution of how they're building this. And it kind of goes back and says all of that stuff all over again, but they're actually doing it. And you could read that and be like, ooh, this is detailed. Why all the specifics? It's actually really important that it's that specific. Because it was, God didn't just be like, hey, uh, Israelites, uh, God, it's tabernacle time, so uh, just find your best interior designer and uh, have at it. And just, just, do, just make it nice. Like, that is not at all what God said. He didn't, and he didn't just make it up. God was, saying, was teaching them, like, I'm going to give you a copy of a tabernacle, of the place of, to demonstrate to you what it's like to worship me in my glory. And little did they know, maybe at the time, but it was patterned after a heavenly reality. And so the old covenant, with its tabernacle and priestly ministry, for all its weaknesses, was actually useful to Israel and to us. It's a copy of the heavenly reality, and it was instituted to teach God's people then and even us now about God's holiness about what it takes to approach the holy God as sinful people. The old covenant system was not convenient, and I think that was on purpose, right? It was bloody, 
It was exacting. It was repetitious. There was glory in it, but still, it taught us that there are serious roadblocks for sinful people to approach a holy God, and the tabernacle taught this. He says they served a copy, but they also served a shadow. What's a shadow? It's a vague outline, uh, an impression that's lacking detail. You know, it's where you can kind of see what something is. You can see its outline maybe, but you can't see the fullness of it. An object that, you know, you know how you create a shadow is, an, you know, you have light source and it's traveling. And there's something that stands in its way or blocks the travel of that light. And it creates an outline or an impression. You know, silhouettes, uh, shadows and silhouettes can be beautiful in, your own way, in their own way. Some of you who are old enough, millennials maybe and older, might remember when you had to sit down in school and they had the overhead projector, right? And they would project against a piece of white paper they would tape on the wall and you'd sit on those, those wee tiny chairs and you'd sit like this sideways and they'd project the side of your head, the profile of your face against the wall and they would take a little pencil or marker. You guys, does anyone remember this? Am I just... Right, thank you. It's not just a Midwest thing. Okay. So they would do this, and they'd, they'd, you know, outline your face, and they'd, you know, put it on black paper or whatever, and then they would frame it and send it home, and it'd be on your wall all through the 90s. Um, it was just a thing that we did. And it's cool, because you can actually look at that, and you're like, that's the size of my head when I was 10. And that's what I looked like. And you can actually, like, make out someone's profile and tell that it's them, but it's only an imp- a shadow. It's only the outline. You can tell who it is, but all the detail is gone. But shadows hint at the substance. A shadow tells you that there's something more. Right? Even in stories, sometimes they're dropping hints in stories that something more is coming. All right? And we call that foreshadowing. It's, it's giving you hints that, there's, that this, there's something here, but there's also something, there's substance, there's something more that's going to be unveiled down the line. And we need to read the Old Testament knowing that the Old Covenant priest's ministry was foreshadowing. All, right? every la- all of it, every last bit was a copy of the heavenly reality, but it was insufficient in itself. It was lacking detail. It was telling us there's something more. And it was given to prepare a people for the substance, which is Christ. The one sent from heaven was sent to fulfill all the promise of the Old Covenant, to unveil what was foreshadowed, to complete what was clearly lacking in the Old Covenant. And so we know we, we, what, we're, what we're learning about in this section is that Christ is superior. And that's what it kind of comes down to in verse 6, that Christ, as it is, has obtained a better ministry than that of the Old Covenant and the Old Covenant priests. And it's as much more excellent than the Old as the covenant he mediates is better, for it's enacted on better promises. So I didn't do like the nice little mathematical equations, and maybe I should have, so forgive me. But Jesus is a better priest than the Old Testament priesthood because the covenant that he mediates, the new covenant, is better than the old covenant because the promises of the new covenant are greater and better than the promises of the old covenant. And so it's important for us, all of this, you know, some of you may be like, that's a lot of Old Covenant talk. That's a lot of priestly stuff. And let's be honest, we haven't really dealt with a priesthood for a really long time, like thousands of years have, you know, since we, this would have been like an upfront issue for us in the same way. But it's important for us that we have a high priest. Christian, consider this. You have such a high priest 
The temple was destroyed, if you remember back in 70 AD, I mentioned. And that was a time when God fully did away with the idea that there is, that the copies and shadows are done. They faded. But the heavenly temple remains. You know, we can easily put our, our hope in things in this world. You can, you can imagine how the Jewish Christians, could, could, they still saw the temple. Maybe they even saw their family who had converted to Christ going to temple, going, offering sacrifices. And that's what they grew up with. It's what they knew. And it's tangible. And it's right there. And it's physical. And it's like, there's a draw to that. Just the tradition, the comfort, the safety of rooting your hope in the things of this earth that we can see and taste and touch and feel. And yet that those things eventually were wiped away. Those copies and shadows were done away with. And it's comforting to know that Jesus' ministry as your high priest cannot be done away with. That his ministry is located in the heavens where it is secure forever. Your high priest is not going to fail you. His intercession, his sacrifice, his ministry is sufficient and active. And if your peace is in heaven where he is serving... You'll find peace. So he goes on in verse 7 through 13 to talk about now how Jesus is mediator of a better covenant. He says that the old covenant was not, was not without fault in verse 7. The argument really is, is, is simple. He says, hey, we had an old covenant. But just the very fact that we have a new covenant, right? And he's going to share the prophecy from Jeremiah here in just a minute. Just the very fact that there is a second covenant shows you that the first was insufficient. Right? This is not like your cell phone. Okay? Your cell phones are designed to become obsolete in like 30 minutes or like two years at most. Right? It doesn't need to be that way, but they need to sell more cell phones. Okay? But you could, you could, some of you are like, I'm running with the iPhone 6 for as long as it will last. You know, some of you are like, I'm going to go as long as I possibly can with this until it actually becomes obsolete. But in most cases, there's a lot of things that are upgraded that don't really need to be upgraded. They don't, there doesn't need to be this. But, but he says, no, hey, just the very fact that there was a second one in this case shows us the first one did have its faults. If there was no faults, there would not need to be a fix. But verse 8 tells us that God did find fault, but he does find fault, but it's not with the covenant itself. The problem wasn't that God gave laws and they were bad laws. Or that the tabernacle he set up wasn't, wasn't good. Or that, that, his or, that, that, that he was teaching something false or that it failed. He says the, God finds fault. Look at this in verse 8. He finds fault with them. Them being the priests. Them being the people. Them being the, the, those who God made a covenant with. The old covenant couldn't accomplish salvation. It couldn't perfect a people for God. It couldn't fully and finally deal with the sins. But hear this, it wasn't designed to do that. It was a copy and a shadow. It was designed to lead people to get them ready for Christ. It was a temporary fixture, a copy, a foretelling of greater things to come. But the fault was with the people. Because remember, God set the ground rules for this relationship. But even that they couldn't keep. We'll look at that in just a moment. He goes to Jeremiah's prophecy in, in chapter 8. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, while I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. 
He's going to go on this Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. He's actually going to quote this again in chapter 10. This is a very important passage for the argument that the author is making. He's saying that God will establish a new covenant, a new covenant, and he says, with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Now, at the time when Jeremiah wrote, Israel and Judah had already been divided. They were, they were divided into two people groups, two kingdoms. They were separated. So God is already hinting that he's going to bring his people back together, that he's going to have one house. And this prophecy made an old covenant people is using kind of idealized language because we know that in Christ, he isn't just talking about Jewish people. He's, he's referring to all people, Jew, Gentile, uh, every tribe, tongue, and nation, not just Israelites, all people in the new covenant in Christ. But we're told why this is, uh, why the new covenant is necessary and different. That it's not just a mulligan, it's not just a reset, right? That there is a new covenant because the first one had its faults because the people weren't able to keep it. You know, when your computer or Wi-Fi stops working, what's the first thing they tell you to do? Just reset it, right? Just turn it off and turn it back on. Even if you call somebody, they're going to be like, did you turn it off? And you're like, of course I didn't do that. And then you do it, and you're like, I just wasted 15 minutes on hold for him to tell me what I should have done in the first place. But it's amazing how just like turning it off and turning it back on actually corrects a lot of bugs, a lot, a lot of errors, right? But, you know, in this situation, when God finds fault, he's not just restarting the old system. He has to install a whole new operating system, right? He has to go from an old covenant. He's not saying, okay, I just need to start with a different, that the people, they couldn't keep the covenant. I find fault with them, so I'm just going to find a new people and start with them. No, God is going to make a covenant with the same people and add people to it, but it's a whole new different system because the old one's obsolete. But God did find fault with people that he gave the old covenant ministry and promises to because it says they didn't continue in it in verse 9. I was talking about Exodus earlier. The Exodus had so much hope in it. But, you know, they, they get freed, you know, from, from slavery in Egypt, and they, they, they exit that, that land, and, they're getting, they go to the, and as soon as they get to the other side of the Red Sea, everything goes bad. They start complaining and disobeying. They start whining. Everything, everything's going good. You know, oh, where's all of our food? Okay, I'll give you manna. What about water? I'll bring you water from a rock. I mean, like God just is like meets all of their needs again and again, but they don't. They just they cannot trust Him, and they refuse to, and they whine and complain. You remember earlier on, I talked about those chapters in, in, in Exodus, chapters twenty-five through thirty, where God describes how they're going to build the tabernacle and start the priesthood, and then I mentioned in in chapters uh, thirty-five through forty, where they actually build it. Do you know what happens in the middle of that section, the five chapters in between? The golden calf. That's where, that's where like Moses is up on the mountain and they say, Where, what's Moses doing up there? You know what? Let's, let's make an idol instead. And so they, they give all of their gold, which by the way was supposed to be going towards the tabernacle. And they give all their gold and stuff to Aaron and he melts it down and makes this golden calf and he says, Behold, this is the God who led you out of Egypt. They couldn't continue in it. The generation failed to enter the rest of God, which he talked about in Hebrews chapter 3, because they did not continue in the covenant. So God found fault with them. Israel had an opportunity to know God, to relate to him, to inherit all these blessings that they didn't even ask for. 
They had the privilege of being God's chosen people, of knowing Him out of all the nations. But they could not and would not willingly obey God. They were weak to fulfill the covenant obligations. And so the result was that it says God showed no concern for them. The people that could not abide the covenant could not abide with God himself, nor he with them. So God says, we need things to change. Because if I just give people my law, even though the law is good, even though the commandments are good, even though the sacrifices are leading towards something good, we are the, we are the, we are the problem. When God sets the ground rules for relationship, even when he lays the groundwork out and says, I will be your God, you'll be my people, just here's how I want you to live, here's how I want you to worship, sinful man says, Maybe not. There's a problem within the heart of every person. And God says, I'm going to have a new covenant that will correct the problem. Not with me, not with my covenant, but with you. I will fix this. And so the new covenant will correct all the weaknesses of the people and fulfill all God's promises to the greatest degree. This was God's plan all along. This wasn't plan B. The new covenant was always plan A. All the other covenants were just getting us to that. This new covenant which Christ will mediate will fulfill all the human obligations. And and, and if we look in this passage, he gives three major areas where the new covenant will be superior, right? Look with me in verse 10. Because he says, in verse 9 actually, let me go back, he says that the new covenant he's making is not like the covenant he made with their fathers. They didn't continue in it. He says, verse 10, For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will, firstly, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. So the first thing we're going to talk about with this new covenant, why it's better, is because we are, he's going to write his law on our minds and on our hearts. God's going to fix the obedience problem. Under the old covenant, the laws were written they were clear. They were actually carved in stone, right? They were, but they, they were there for all to see. But many in Israel did not love the law. Some did. You go back and read Psalm 119. The longest chapter in Scripture is a giant love letter to God's law, saying, God, it's so wise. It's so good. You make me wiser than my teachers. You, you, you lead me in the way of everlasting. It's just a love of God's word. But most people in Israel did not love God's law. It was impressed upon them. They didn't ask for it. They didn't say, God, show me how to live. God said, this is how you're going to live. And they didn't want to live that way. And truth be told, that's what sin is. God, I don't want to do what you want me to do. And even just because you told me to do it, I don't want to do it. I want to do what I want to do. They didn't love God's law. And for this reason, they failed to obey God time and again. In the new covenant, God says, I'm going to fix this problem. The law of God isn't pressed on you. It's planted in your heart. This means that God gives you an understanding of God's law, and he gives you an affection for God's commands and a love for them. Jesus even he says this in John 14, 15. He says, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. That's not a threat. That's a promise. In 1 John 2, 3, he's, he's saying this is actually evidence that you truly know God. He says, and by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Notice that. He doesn't say, if you keep the commandments, I'll let you know God. He says, if you know God, 
You will keep the commandments increasingly as you get older, as you mature in the faith. It's actually one of the marks of a true believer and certainly one of the marks of a maturing believer. See, if you're outside of Christ, you see the commands of God as burdensome. You see them as an obstacle to overcome, something to argue around because it's getting in the way of what you really want to do. And you see God as a bully, God as a tyrant. God is someone who's trying to prevent you from being happy. That's the sin nature. The law is not in your heart. But God says, I'm going to give you a new heart so you see my commandments as good and wise. And you're going to see that I'm more than just a lawgiver. I'm not some cosmic policeman. I'm your father. And I'm teaching you how to live and how to love me and how to live in a way that is honoring and good for you. A new covenant believer delights in God's word, word, delights in God's will, even delights in his commands. You read scripture, you're like, yes, amen, that is good. That's a good rule. I like that. God, help me. Because I see that I, I want, and it's, you, you might have this experience when you're reading the scripture and you see a, a command and there's a party that chafes against that and you're like, oh, God, forgive me. Because this isn't the problem. This is the problem. God, help me by your spirit to obey your commands. And that's what gets even further. God doesn't just, you know, put his law in our minds and hearts so that we like memorize it and understand it. He gives us his Holy Spirit, the one who wrote the commands into our hearts to say, let me help you. Let me help you to obey this command because the flesh is weak, but I am powerful to make you a disciple. The author of Scripture now dwells within us. The law, I mean, all that used to be dwell in, in, in the tabernacle and temples of stone, but now he do, it's in the temple of our bodies. The author of Scripture is now dwelling within us, helping us to understand, stirring us to love the Word, bringing the Word to mind in situations where we need it most, which we wouldn't do on ourself, by ourselves. And so God in the New Covenant fixes our obedience problem the second thing that he does is he, he fixes the access problem. In verses 10 and 11, he says this, And I will put my law in their hearts and minds. And listen to this, I love this. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least to the greatest. God will be our God, and we will be his people. This was the promise of the Old Covenant too, but it was somewhat more conditional. As long as you fulfill your obligations, that was part of it. They had to fulfill their part in it, right? God kept his part. Here's my promises. Here's the expectations I set for myself. Now here's the things that you need to do for us to remain in covenant fellowship. But here's the problem, as we just read, they didn't continue in it. And if God had just hit the reset button and said, I'm going to do the old covenant 2.0, right, and just I'm going to try again with a different people, the same exact thing would have happened. So God says, I'm going to fix this problem of you not being able to fulfill your end of the bargain. I'm going to fulfill your end of the bargain. God sent his son Jesus, and he had to become a human being. He had to take on flesh because he had to be one of us. And Jesus lived the perfect life fulfilling the covenant obligations on our behalf. Jesus is our righteousness. 
He didn't only die for our sins as, as, as a means of covering our failures. He also fulfills the obligations of the covenant that we couldn't do, that we wouldn't do, that we could not continue in. Jesus does that on our part. That's what it means when Paul says that Christ is our righteousness, that he is the righteousness, righteousness of God fulfill, uh, given to us to be received by faith. And so Jesus fulfills the covenant, our, our role in that for us. And so now, we don't have to worry about this covenant breaking. Those who are in the, tr- in the covenant truly know God deeply, personally, and eternally. We don't have to fear that this is going to go away. But that's God's heart. God's heart is that, he, his heart has always been that you will be my people, and I will be your God. John 17, 3, when I, a passage I go back to all the time says this. Jesus says, this is eternal life. This is what it's all about. That they know you. He's talking, he's praying. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus whom you've sent. Guys, that's God's big plan. That is God's desire. That you know God. That's why you exist. That's why you were given breath. That's why you were given life. That's why he sent his son Jesus. That's why he gave you the Holy Spirit. That's why he established his church. So that you would know God. Heaven, you going to heaven is about you knowing God. And that's where your joy and delight will be fulfilled. And he says that the old covenant community, is, was there were some problems with it. First of all, it was a blended community, which means that it was a community of people who some people in the covenant were believers, and, and probably the majority of them were not. There were people there in, the, in this covenant who did not know God. But in the new covenant, things are different. It's only believers. It's, it's, not, it's not based on ethnicity or where you were born or anything like that. It's based on faith. The only way into the new covenant is by faith in Jesus Christ. Jew, Gentile, young or old. So if you're in the new covenant, you're, you're part of God's people. The new covenant people all know God and they're not separated into tears. Under the old covenant, only certain people could go into the temple could go into the tabernacle before that. And only one person, the high priest, once a year, could go into the most holy place where God was most fully, if you want to put it that way. But there's no tears anymore. There's no, there's no uh, VIP line for certain Christians. If you are in Christ, if he is your high priest, if you trust him, you are part of God's people. And you have access to God. Jesus is our forerunner who went into the most holy place and he made a way for us and he tore the the curtain temple top to bottom. So there's no division of access. All of you can know God because that's God's desire, that you would know him. God doesn't want your religious adherence. He doesn't want your church attendance or he doesn't want you just to be a little bit more moral than the other people around you. He doesn't want tepid belief in a few. You believe these three key doctrines and then I'm happy. Right? It's not, he doesn't want just lip service, certainly. God wants you. He wants you to know him. He wants you to be with him forever. And he made your heart to yearn for him so that only he can fulfill. And in the new covenant, that desire is fulfilled. Lastly, we have forgiveness. The big thing that we talk about all the time. In verse 12, he talks about that. That He says, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. 
In the weeks to come, we're going to look more at the later chapters of Hebrews. He's going to talk more and more about the atonement of Christ and the death of Christ on the cross. Um, but for our purposes, it'll say that Jesus accomplished by his death on the cross what generations of animal sacrifices couldn't. Forgiveness of sins and freedom from sin forever. Speaking to believers, Paul writes this in Romans 5, 1. He says, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace with God. The problem with sin, one of the things that it does, it's not just bad things that make us feel bad of ourselves. That, that's true. That, that's part of sin. We feel shame. We feel guilt. That's what's real to us. But the bigger problem is that it puts us at, at odds with God. Sin is war against God. Sin is hostility against God. It's treason against our Creator. And the promise of this verse, and the promise of many like it, is that if you have faith in Christ, that He has died for your sins and paid the penalty, that He puts you in right standing with God. That in Christ, if He's your High Priest, your Savior, your Lord, you have peace with God. If you're outside the covenant, though, if you do not have faith in Christ, if He's not your High Priest then this is a sobering thought. Your sins are not forgiven. If you're outside of Christ, you may not feel like it, but you're still actually at war with God and He with you. I think, I think many people have enough of a, maybe a cultural understanding of Christianity or, or a, you know, a, an understanding of who God is to think, you know, that, to know enough about God to believe, yeah, I've heard about God and I've heard He's loving I've heard that he's kind. You know, and by the way, that's true. And, and, and we have this hope, you know, if I just live like a generally good life, if I try my best, if I'm moral, if I go to church every now and then, if I, if I do those things, surely God in his kindness will overlook my faults and, you know, and he'll overlook the errors and know that I tried my best. And, you know, if, if God is kind, he'll, he'll let me into heaven. And I think that's the hope of a lot of people. That hell is really only for like the really bad people, but for those who try really hard and are, are generally good people, that, that God in his kindness will, will, will let them in. But I want you to hear this. I want you to understand this. Christ is the kindness of God. Faith in Christ is the only way into the new covenant, wherein your sins are forgiven and forgotten and covered and they don't belong to you anymore and they're done and they're thrown away and they're cast as far as east is from west and God looks at them no more. It's only in the new covenant which you only enter by faith in Christ. If you do not have Christ, though, you still own those sins. They're still yours. And you're going to carry them with you to the throne of God, each and every one, and you will have to give an account for them. But if you turn to faith in Christ, if you trust him to do his work as high priest, I promise you, he will wipe them all away. He will, he will put his law, he'll put his commands, a love for his word into your heart. He'll put you in right positioning, in right place, in right standing with God. He'll wash away your past, give you a future. He'll, he'll set a place at the table for you. And introduce you to the God that you've always known was there, but you've never really known. And God will be your God, and you'll be his people. So in closing, I'll look very quickly at verse 13. He simply says, hey, this is the new covenant that's coming up, and that now is here because Christ has come. And the old covenant, it's obsolete now. 
In the same way that once Jesus came, he established the new covenant, there was a period of overlap between the old and new covenants. Where John the Baptist, people were following John the Baptist, and they were, you know, still kind of within Judaism, and they hadn't heard the gospel yet. And so, even as we read the book of Acts, there's a period where there was some overlap. But in 70 A.D., when this temple was destroyed, God closed the book on the old covenant. It was it was obsolete. It was no longer even growing old and ready to vanish away. It had vanished, and all that remains is the new covenant, in which Christ is the mediator. And so you who are believers in Christ are in this covenant. We're of faith. We who are of faith have him as our high priest. And all the promises of God are fulfilled. All the blessings of the Spirit are in him. As Jesus said at the Last Supper, which we're going to partake of in just a minute, he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. It's come. It's here. It's not a future thing. It's here now. And so we're going to, I'm going to actually invite the, uh, the worship team to come up as we're about ready to celebrate the blessing of this new covenant. That we who are in God, we who are in faith in Christ, have God as our Father. We have all the promises. He, Jesus, our faithful high priest, has brought us near, and he will keep us there. Will you pray with me? Father, we give you praise. We thank you that we have such a high priest that Jesus is faithful, that he is glorious, that he is interceding for us, that he is our righteousness. We thank you, God, for your wonderful plans, God, that you have a new covenant that will last forever, that you will keep us in faith, that you will keep us near to you, that, you will, that we don't have to worry about falling from you. That, God, in your wisdom, in your love, and in your righteousness, you have brought us near to you forever. We thank you for the blood of Christ, the body of Christ that was broken, that covers our sins. God, we give you glory and honor and praise for all that you've accomplished in Christ. It's in his name I pray. Amen.